All right, Docs of Church. Guys, go ahead and uh, grab a seat. And uh, yeah, guys, grab your, grab your Bible and uh, find your way to the Gospel of Mark chapter six. If you're newer to Doxa, this is your first time, uh, you're joining us in the midst of a study through this historical gospel, according to this man named Mark, where we're just investigating the historical man, Jesus, who is not just a historical and, and prolific man, but he is a man that is the God man and still alive today. And as we get into chapter six this morning, okay, um, it's important for us to realize that we are about halfway through Jesus's ministry. All right, that Mark wastes no amount of time. I mean, if you notice, one of his favorite words is immediately. Jesus did this, immediately he did this, immediately he went there. We're halfway through Jesus's ministry. He's moving really quickly through the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. And then what we're going to find is he's going to slow way down as we get to the Passion Week. Jesus's last week here on earth as a man, as we get, goes to the cross and then raises from the dead. But as we've been watching the life of Jesus unfold throughout Mark's gospel account. You know, we've been seeing Jesus do some amazing things, and he's saying some incredible things. I mean, if you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he's, he's declaring himself to be God among humanity, bringing the, bringing the kingdom of God near to the people whom God loves. He's performing miracle after miracle. We've been watching this, and through these miracles, we're, we're seeing the power of Jesus, that as we've been going through these last couple chapters, we're seeing that Jesus, in fact, has power over creation. He has power over demons. He has power over sickness and disease, and he has even power over death. And as we've been watching this, guys, it's important to remember that the miracles are never the point. They're never the point, but they actually point us to the main point, that with all of Jesus' miracles, I want you to understand this, we're not just to be led to be amazed but it's to lead us to worship. That all of Jesus's miracles just serve to validate and vindicate all of his claims to be God. And as we see him do the miraculous, we realize that all of his claims are true. And in Jesus, we have God who has come to seek us, to serve us, and to save us. And at this time in Mark 6, okay, news has has traveled all over all over the region around Jesus, which led to just multitudes of people. They're coming to see Jesus. They just like are saying, I'm hearing all these things. I'm hearing these reports. I gotta see Jesus with my own eyes. And so these crowds are flocking to Jesus. We've been watching this over the last part of his ministry. And in the midst of all of this, he's doing some miracles, but then he leaves the crowds and he heads back to his hometown. And what we're gonna see today is a very interesting reception to Jesus from the people who know him the most. And I want to set it up like this, okay? Years ago, there was a, an older guy that was kind of mentoring me, and he shared this article with me called The Seven Stages of a Married Cold. I don't know if you guys have ever read this or not, but it tells the story of a husband's reaction to his wife getting sick, all right, getting a cold during the first seven years of, of their marriage, all right? But here's how it goes. The first year, the husband says, Sugar dumpling, I'm so worried about my baby girl. You have a bad sniffle and I'm gonna carry you to the hospital for a checkup and get you get some rest. And while you're there resting, since the food is not very good, I'm gonna bring you something from your favorite restaurant. The second year, the husband says, darling, 
I really don't love the sound of your cough. I'm so worried about you. I've called the doctor. He's going to come to the house. Now go to bed like a good girl for daddy. Now, guys, I would say this. Don't call your wife daddy. I mean, maybe she like, if it was anything like my wife, that didn't work out too well. But third year, the husband says, maybe you need to lie down, honey, because there's something, there's nothing like some rest when you feel crummy. I'll bring you something to eat. Do you have any cans of soup in the house? Fourth year, hey, girl, let's be sensible. After you make dinner and do the dishes and tidy up the house and pack lunches for tomorrow, you need to get in bed for some rest. The fifth year, can you stop complaining so much? Go take some Tylenol. The sixth year, if you would just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking in my face like a seal, I would appreciate it so much. Year seven, for Pete's sake, woman, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Now, guys, how many of you can relate to this like disintegrating sense of sensitivity towards your wife? Wow, one guy, great. <laughs> We can hang out, we'll grab a beer, it'll be awesome, okay? But the rest of you, you shouldn't lie, this is church, okay? But uh, <laughs> guys, we've all been there on the human level, right? Where we become more and more insensitive to the people closest to us that we know so very well. And these reactions reveal our susceptibility to a commonly known saying that we're all guilty of, which is this, is that it's familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. That the more and more you know someone, the more familiar you become with someone, the more susceptible you and I are to take that person for granted and dishonor them. And Psychology Today wrote an article on this idea and they explained it as it relates to honor. That to honor really means to, to recognize as significant or special. And oftentimes we become so familiar with something or someone that we stop viewing that thing as significant and special and this leads to us just feeling like contempt towards that person or disinterest or even rejection. And this is what we're gonna see here in Mark chapter six. All right, so we're gonna start in verse one, we're gonna read this account and then we'll get to work with understanding it. So Mark chapter six, verse one. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. All right, so this is God's word and this is what he has for us today. And, and this is the account of Jesus' second visit to his hometown in Nazareth. If you're familiar with your Bible, the first visit that he had back in Luke chapter four, he visited his hometown of Nazareth. This was about a year or year and a half prior to this situation that we're here in Mark six. And upon his last visit, his initial reception, the people just like marveled at him. They loved his teaching. They thought, man, this guy is a great communicator. And they loved it. But then all of a sudden, he made claims that he was the Messiah 
that he had come and he was going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. And they, his whole hometown, they turned on him and they tried to kill him. But despite this, okay, Jesus here, with great love in his heart towards the people of his hometown, he decides to come back and he brings his disciples. And as he goes back, I think it's possible that Jesus, having the love, perfect love in his heart, wanted to go back and to give his hometown and his family and friends like another shot to believe, to find forgiveness of sin, that he just was like, okay, they rejected me, they tried to kill me, but maybe this will be different. I wanna give them another shot. But I think it's also likely that he was planning on using this trip to prepare his disciples for what gospel ministry is actually gonna be like for them. Because if you just look down to verse 11, Jesus is about to send out his disciples and he says in verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, okay, so he's inferring that the disciples are gonna be rejected just like Jesus was. This is gospel ministry. He tells them that when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus is, is going there with love in his heart, but he's also going there to train his disciples of like, here's what it's gonna look like for you to actually take the gospel into the world. He was equipping the disciples for what ministry will be like. And this goes back, if you remember, to Mark chapter four, where Jesus gives the parable of the soils. He said, you're gonna encounter some really hard soil. And so Jesus, he's going there out of love to help the people of his hometown. He's also focusing on equipping. But the main thing that we see as we watch Jesus walk into Nazareth is this. It's just rejection. And as we consider how Jesus was treated by his own family and friends, guys, I really think it's good for us to reflect on how we treat and how we respond and how we see Jesus today. Just, so just think about this. Because do you see Jesus as amazing and special and significant? Like are you enthralled by Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Or do you just see Jesus as, as ordinary? Do you see Jesus as just another guy in the history books where it really doesn't change anything about your life, anything about your worldview? Or maybe, maybe you're here, you grew up in and around the church, you're, you're really familiar, you know a lot about the teachings of Jesus, and he has just become so familiar to you. That years ago, you were in college, you found a college ministry, you were in Bible studies, you were doing all these things, you were throwing off sin, you were thinking about becoming a missionary, but then life kicks in, and now you kind of like struggle to even want to pick up your Bible or even come to church, but you're here because your wife or you think your kids just need this but you're not enthralled with Jesus. Where are you at today as you consider Jesus? And as you think about this, all right, the way that we're gonna study this passage this morning is by asking a few questions. And the first one is this, if you're a note taker, because when you consider Jesus, are you only amazed? Look back to verse two. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Okay, so Jesus is in the synagogue, and Mark says people are astonished. They're just amazed by Jesus. They hear his words, they witness his works, and they think, guys, this is crazy. Are you guys seeing this? They're just amazed by him. 
And this is in part what should happen. See, guys, the two greatest evidences that God gave his son to prove his deity were his mighty words and his mighty works. That with his mighty words, people had the thought, I've never heard anyone speak like this. That this man has authority, he's very wise. I've never heard anybody talk like this. And then as they would watch his mighty works, they understood that no one could do the miracles that Jesus did. That Jesus stands alone in a category unto himself. He's like no person who has ever lived. He's totally different. And these people were amazed. And if you look back, they start to ask a series of questions. And all these questions, if you look, are questions of origin. Like, where did it all come from? They're trying to figure it out. And here's what I want you to know, okay? Guys, Jesus' words and works, they might amaze you, but you need to know that's not enough. Because just consider this. The number of miracles that we have been seeing throughout Mark are just growing, they're mounting. Chapter one, he heals a bunch of sick people. Then he heals a leper. Then a paralyzed man gets up and walks. He calms a storm in chapter four. Then he casts out a legion of demons in chapter five and he raises a little girl back from the dead. He heals a woman who had a condition that was debilitating her for 12 years. And these people in Nazareth, they're not denying that these things happened. All right, they're not denying it. But these things don't bring them to faith. See, the miracles of Jesus are not the point, but they point us to the point. That Jesus' miracles, they validate his message, and this is what Jesus was most concerned about. That if you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, the central part of his ministry is teaching. Read through the Gospels, you'll see this, that his priority was always to go to the people who needed to hear the truth of their lives and the truth of God and to teach them. And I point this out because many people will see the power of God You'll come here on a baptism, you'll see the power of God, you'll stand up here, you'll hear me and others talk about how God has set them free from addiction and radically changed their life, and you will be amazed at the miraculous work and the power, but you could miss the point. That it's not just the miracles, but the message that we're to focus on. And the miracles validate the message, and this was the emphasis for Jesus. In fact, later on in this chapter, Right after the death of John the Baptist, he tries to get his disciples away so that they can have rest. And he goes to the other side of a lake. A huge crowd is waiting for him there. And if you look at verse 34, when it says this, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began what? Teaching them many things. He didn't just show up and say, look what I can do. Heal, 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 right? But he showed up and he began teaching them many things. The teaching ministry of Jesus is top priority. That people were perishing in sin because they did not know the truth. And the greatest need for these people and the greatest need for us, guys, is not physical healing, but their greatest need and our greatest need is the salvation of our souls. This is absolutely true. But in the amazement, these people, they ask a series of questions. Look back, they ask, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? What, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse three, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And I want you to see this. Guys, these questions, they're not just like neutral. 
All right, they're, they're meant to be disparaging questions. That these people did not deny that Jesus was doing and saying amazing things, but they didn't understand how they did it or where it came from, and they just chose to leave that question open and unanswered. And we know from Mark chapter three that we were in a couple weeks ago that some of these people were actually saying like he's powerful, but it's not of God, but it's actually by Satan. But some of these Nazarenes, they might have been in that camp, they, but they, some of them probably likely heard and saw all that Jesus was doing, and they were like people who go see an illusionist. Right, have you been there? You see an illusionist and you're like, I don't know what the heck happened, that was amazing. It's certainly not supernatural. He did something, but who cares? It doesn't really affect my life. And they walk away. There's probably some people like that that were just like, wow, that was, that was crazy. All right, what's for dinner? Just didn't care. But look back. The majority, Mark says, were offended. They took offense. And as they asked these questions, it was as if they were saying, hey, all of this is amazing but do you really expect me to believe that this is the Messiah? Do you really expect me to believe that this is the Christ? I mean, you're telling me, you want me to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, are you kidding? And these people were like, man, I can't explain it all, I can't explain everything that Jesus is doing, but I knew this guy when he was a kid. I watched him grow up. He's just a nobody from Nazareth, just like me. And this was the view of Nazareth. It was a podunk town, a little small town that no one came from good. And this is what question Nathaniel asks in John 1 saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? See, these people were amazed and they were intrigued, but they didn't believe. And they even take shots at Jesus. When they ask, if you look back, when they say, isn't this the son of Mary? Because some some scholars would say that this is nothing more than an indication that Joseph had died But on the other hand, at this time, whether the father was alive or not, you would always refer to him in talking about the kids. And so more than likely, when they asked this question, they were saying, you think this guy is God? This illegitimate kid from Mary who slept around with a bunch of guys and we don't even know who the dad is. You you think he's God? They were taking a shot. They didn't believe. These people, as they considered Jesus, they were not impressed. And they just looked at Jesus and said, you're a nobody from nowhere and there's nothing special. Because they were so familiar with Jesus. They knew him so well that, hear this, they couldn't see him for who he truly was. Familiarity breeds contempt. And honestly, when I was studying this this week, this is one of the saddest sections of the Bible for me. These people totally missed Jesus because they refused to see him for who he truly is. And they only wanted to see him how they wanted to see him. So let me just ask, like, how, are you, how do you see Jesus? Like, are you just missing, are you missing him for who he truly is? This is a massive, massive question that only you can answer. But here's the second question I want us to ask. When you consider Jesus, are you offended? Are you offended by Jesus? Look back at the end of verse three again. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his home, 
town and among his relatives and in his own household. Doc said this like axiomatic truth is the ancient parallel of the saying familiarity breeds contempt. These people were so familiar with Jesus thinking that they knew him so, so well that they were basically asking, who does this guy think he is? And they took offense at him. The people of Nazareth, they were so aware and they understood Jesus' humanity, but they could not accept his deity. And this paradox is right at the heart of Mark's gospel. And it should be no surprise to us as we read this that Jesus would be rejected and despised. Because if we know our Bible, we think back to hundreds of years earlier in the prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be our suffering servant who would be despised and rejected. And this is so significant. See, the Gospel of Mark presents two images of Jesus, the Son of God. Sometimes we see this royal image of the Son, his identity and his glorious and divine nature. And other times we get the image of a servant of the Son. He's the servant. He's humble in his his earthly origins. But I need you to understand that Jesus is both. And what the Nazarenes and many people today just readily and repeatedly fail to understand is that he is actually both. That even in this room, I know with this amount of people, there's likely some of you in here that you're unwilling to acknowledge the historical Jesus of Nazareth. And I would say respectfully, that people in Nazareth and people today are wrong when they see only a carpenter, only the son of Mary, and only a man. They miss the true reality that Jesus is truly man and truly God. And I know that no amount of preaching, no amount of like anything I can say can ever like really open your eyes because apart from the eyes of faith, no one will see Jesus for who he truly is. And that's why I pray so much. I pray a lot more than I preach at this church for God to move, for God to open eyes, for God to help us to see Jesus because this is what happened in my life. I had preaching all the time and it took 20 some years for my eyes to finally be opened and it was nothing that I did. I didn't find a great podcast or TED talk. God broke in and he opened up my eyes. And this is what we need because in and of ourselves, because miracles are not enough. Jesus' point, or Jesus's miracles, they point us to his identity. They're divine signs declaring that he is God that has come for us. And so let me ask you this. Because as you consider Jesus, God become a man, are you offended? Like when you hear the words and the teachings of Jesus, are you offended? Like you hear his, his commands, you hear his warnings, do you hear that and just kind of like intrinsically resist them and reject them? And before I go any further, if that is you and you're like, yes, I don't believe any of this stuff, I love that you're here. Guys, it was not that long ago that I was in the place that, and I had that life posture. But please just let me tell you this. The reason that you have that in you is because you are prideful. And if you're mad at me for calling you prideful, you're probably more prideful than most. And the truth is, is that we're all prideful, every single one of us, that every time I sin, it's because of pride in me, where I say, I know what's right, Rob wants to do what Rob wants to do, Rob is not going to answer to anyone, and every time I sin, it's because there's a root of pride in my life. It's just pride, and it's in every single one of us. 
And I wanna remind all of us that guys, we will miss the grace of Jesus if we have a prideful hard heart that closes our eyes to who Jesus is and deafens our ears to what Jesus says. Listen to Proverbs 16, 18. It says that pride comes before the fall. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace and lifts up the humble. Daniel 4.37 talks about how God humbles those who walk in pride. And what this means is that in our pride, our pride will bring us down and keep us from God. That pride keeps us from God because God hates pride. He absolutely hates pride and when we're full of pride, he's actually against us. This is what James 4, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So God is in heaven and he's doing two things. He's opposing proud people and he's lifting up humble. Pride is the thing that says, man, I I see Jesus, I hear Jesus but I don't need anything from Jesus. This is the Nazarenes and Doxa If this is your posture, you will miss the gift and the grace of Jesus. The Nazarenes missed out on the grace of Jesus because they had proud, hard hearts and they refused to see Jesus for who he was. That they had more than enough evidence of who Jesus was, but they refused to believe him. This is what John says in John chapter three. Doxa, I need you to know that the gospel will only be accepted and Jesus will only be experienced by humble people. Humble people that say, you know what? There is a God and I'm not him. Humble people that will stand there and say, there is problems in my life. Humble people that will say, God has spoken and that's what this book is all about. Humble people that will recognize that Jesus actually defeated death and because of that, everything that he says is emphatically true. Humble people that will stand under the authority of scripture and say, I have thoughts and ways, but I hear God say in Isaiah 55 that his thoughts and his ways are higher and better than mine and so I will listen. Humble people that will hear the word of God and say, sin separates, but Jesus loves and brings back. Humble people that will come to Jesus and fall at the foot of the cross and say, I don't have anything I can do to get rid of my sin problem, but you have the answer, fix me. It's only humble people that will fall at the feet of the cross and say, Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. Take my sin, give me your righteousness. Guys, this is the gospel. And in that moment of humility at the feet of Jesus, He lifts us up, he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and he brings us back to God. This is the gospel, and it's humble people that will experience the great benefit and the great joy of the gospel of Jesus. This gospel changes everything about us, but pride will keep us from experiencing this redemption and this joy, because pride will ultimately keep you from really seeing Jesus for who he is because we all really want to be the God of our own life. And for those of you who are Christians, I need you to understand that familiarity with this gospel, you know 
all the verses from Moana. You got the quiz bowl trophies. Like, you know a lot. You sit here, and rather than receiving from someone giving you the word of God on a Sunday, you critique and think, how would I teach it? This is pride. This is familiarity that will numb us. And it will numb us to such an extent that we will miss out on Jesus because he becomes so familiar, and soon enough, we're like the Nazarenes. And we're like, I know, I know all that. I'm not amazed by him at all. And so the answer is to come to Jesus and worship him every single day. Every single day of our lives because he is good, he is God, and he loves you. And this leads to the last question. Last question we'll ask, which is this. When you consider Jesus, are you guilty of unbelief? Verse five. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, as I was reading this this week, like I'm sitting in Panera back in my little nook. I hate that this happened to the Nazarenes. If you just sit there and see this, guys, it is so incredibly sad, but I'm also grateful that we get to learn from them. And I need to explain this because the wording, if you look back, can make it seem like Jesus is limited and powerless unless people have faith. Like you guys remember the, the movie Elf where, where Santa's sleigh couldn't fly without Christmas cheer? You remember that? Some people think that Jesus is kind of like that, that his, the Jesus faith meter needs to be in full in order for something really big to happen, for him to move in power and to heal and do miraculous things, but this is not the case here. That if you look at Matthew chapter 13, Matthew makes it very clear that the real issue is the unbelief of the people. And their unbelief brought a type of judgment. All right, listen to what Matthew says. He says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so the limitation of miracles came from their unbelief, not the inability of Jesus. And what this means, it's not that Jesus could not do anything there, it's that Jesus would not do the miracles there. He could do it, but he's like, I am not going to do any more miracles. The purposes of miracles are for you to see me for who I truly am and to hear my words in my message. You've had more than enough. You have made up your mind. You have closed your eyes off to me. And he, this is a type of judgment that they are experiencing here. And Mark says that there were in fact a few people that were not so prideful and hardened and Jesus healed them, but the majority just decided to reject Jesus. I mean, just think, I thought about this. Just imagine what Jesus would have done in his hometown with people he loved if there would have been a presence of faith. I oftentimes wonder about that. Like, what would happen in Madison? What would happen in this church? Now, I'll tell you this, guys. There's a massive difference between doubt and unbelief. All right, doubt has trouble believing, but unbelief refuses to believe. All right, there's a big difference. And Jesus, I need you to know this. If you have some doubts, okay, welcome to the club. I don't have all the answers. I have Jesus, but if you do have doubts, I want you to know that Jesus will meet us in our doubts as he does the man in Mark chapter nine when he says, I need, help me with my, help me to believe. Give me more faith. But refusal and absolute rejection, we see what Jesus does here. As he leaves Nazareth, 
he leaves. And we have no records of him ever coming back to Nazareth. And if we just stop and pause on that statement, we should just see this as incredibly sad. I mean, Jesus says, okay, I've shown you everything you need to believe, but I'm not gonna make you do anything. And he leaves. I mean, this is like an echo of Paul in Romans 1 where these people were so caught up in their idolatry and their anti-God lifestyle. And Paul says that God gave them up to their immorality. And if we look back at verse six, all right, there's only two times in the Bible where it says that Jesus was amazed or that he marveled. All right, the first time is in Luke chapter seven, verse nine, where he saw the faith of the Roman centurion who believed Jesus could heal even from a distance by just speaking a word. And then the second time here, in Mark chapter six, verse six, where he's amazed at the people's unbelief. And here what we see is the truth that we can have real knowledge without saving faith. I know that some of you in here, guys, you've played the church game and you have real knowledge about who Jesus is. You know the Bible, you know the gospel, but you don't have faith. And if that's you, guys, I just need you to know you're in a place like the Nazarenes here. And I picture Jesus so sad in this moment thinking, man, you've seen what I've done, which have shown you who I am, and you're gonna be that prideful? You're gonna be that hard-hearted that you won't let me take your sin? That's all I want, I wanna take your sin, but you're not gonna let me do it. And this is what Jesus would say to you today if you're in that place of unbelief. In fact, here is what, look at John chapter 10. This is what Jesus would say. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is saying, if you don't believe my words, then look at my works because they will show you who I am. And the bottom line, guys, is that every single person in this room, in this world, we all need Jesus. No matter how Christian you think you are, you need Jesus. And no matter how lost and drowned and dirty you think you are, you need Jesus and he's there waiting for you because he loves you. Open your eyes and see him for who he truly is. God come to save you. And I need you to understand guys, unbelief is not just like a neutral thing. Okay, it's not neutral. Unbelief is a powerful force with devastating ramifications, first in this life and then the next. Just consider this, okay? In the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God's clear instruction and they ate from the forbidden tree and death came. The people in Noah's day refused to believe his warning and they were subsequently lost in the flood. After the exodus from Egypt, faithless Aaron, embodied in the form of a golden calf, resulted in 3,000 people dying. The fear of the 10 spies, representative of the nation of Israel, caused the entire generation to die in the wilderness. After setting into the promised land, the reoccurring unbelief of the Israelites brought about God's repeated judgment. Even after the resurrection, 
Stephen told the religious leaders who were killing him that they were continuing in unbelief of their pride and hard-heartedness. And today, we just need to know that unbelief, which is a result of pride and hard hearts, results in dying in sin and forfeiting heaven. And the heart cry of Jesus is, see me, trust me, come to me. I've done everything for you. I love you. This is the heart cry of Jesus to you today. With everything in me, guys, this is why this church exists, so that you could see Jesus. You need Jesus. Open your eyes. Guys, here's the big idea. Seeing Jesus for who he truly is unleashes the power of God in your life. Don't miss out on the power of God in your life. It's the power of God that will take your sin and give you an eternity of joy. It is the power of God that can set you free from addiction, in insecurities, in mental things. It's the power of God. He is able. Don't miss out on the power of God for your current joy and your eternal joy. And beware, Christian, of allowing Jesus to fade into the familiar. Don't get so familiar with Jesus that it breeds contempt in your life and you begin to reject him and forget about him. And so here's how I'm gonna end. I don't wanna just be informational, but I, I wanna be helpful. And I was thinking about this, it's like, okay, great, don't become too familiar with Jesus, is that it? And I started thinking about like, well, how do I actually seek to do this in, in my life? And so I just, I'm gonna share with you how I seek to not let Jesus fade into the familiar. Because it's this, it's gonna come up here on the screen, Psalm 119. Each time I go to the Bible, I pray, open my eyes that I may behold wonders in your law. And the point of this prayer is that there are wonders everywhere in the Bible. Do you know that? This is God's word to us and it's filled with wonders. God's very words to us, filled with wonders. Every single page of every single book of the Bible is filled with wonders for us to see. And the psalmist is aware that he doesn't oftentimes feel or see wonderful things as wonderful. And so the psalmist asks to see. And this is what I do. And I ask specifically that I would have spiritual eyes to see what is wonderful and that I would see it as wonderful. And so what we're gonna do is I'm gonna give you a minute just to sit and pray. And so I would just encourage you, close your Bible, close your journal, close your phone, whatever. And I just want you to go to God in prayer, knowing that he is a good father, he hears you, he sees you. And just ask him and just say, help me see open my eyes to help me to see you as wonderful. Ask him for that. This is a prayer that God would love to answer. Maybe your prayer is like, man, I'm here, but help me with my unbelief. Pray the prayer of the man in Mark 9. Help me with my unbelief. 
Maybe your prayer is just help me to see Jesus for who he truly is. And so whatever you gotta do, and maybe it's you even just sitting here and you realize that you've never really seen Jesus for who he is, and that's today. And go to him and just thank him for being God and thank him for coming for your sin and tell him, I'm in. There's no magic prayer to come to Jesus. It's recognizing that he is God. It's recognizing that there's sin in your life. It's putting your faith in him, asking him to take your sin and give you his righteousness, and it's committing to follow him. And maybe that's what you need to do today. So let's just take a minute and talk to the Father. God, open our eyes that we may behold wonders in your law. Jesus, we see you, that you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. You are the son of God and the humble servant. You are the man of sorrows, the good shepherd, and the prince of peace. You are the wonderful counselor, the sinless savior, and the resurrection, and the life. You are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are the sinner's friend and the great high priest. You are the king of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and you are the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus, we just say that we love you. Help us to truly see you. We ask this in Jesus' name.